Do you know what specific event caused religious leaders to plot Jesus' death? Here's a hint. It was an act of sheer rebellion to them. I'll give you the answer later. But before we get there, you need to see some of the other radical things that he did on the way to that event, all to prove a huge message that they hated. Many people still hate today. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, author of the book Shut Up Devil, creator of the Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life, and I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience. I'd love for you to join us live sometime on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. Okay, big part of this ministry is reaching people behind a screen, and I love that God lets me do this. I get to talk to people that would never step foot inside of a church for one of many reasons, I guess. But like anything, it has its downsides too. Screens give people a sense of courage to say what they never would in person. How many of you experienced that before? You know, in the comment boxes, which there's a comment box below everything on social media these days. Too many people take that opportunity to share their minds without any inhibitions. Of course, my posts, if you follow me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, I want them all. My posts occasionally attract agonizing or antagonizing, they're agonizing too, but antagonizing comments from militant atheists, which I kind of expect, I guess. What is far more frustrating, though, are the armchair theologians who pick apart a 280-character tweet for not mentioning every possible caveat. I especially hear from them anytime I mention God's goodness and love, which I talk about a lot if you follow me on social media. You see it a lot. So I get their vitriol a lot. But, 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 they sound like a goat going on with all the reasons why what I said about God's love can't possibly be true. One lady got irate over a video I shared. She said, stop commonizing God, he is holy. Of course, he's holy. I would never say anything otherwise. The lady was angry though because I said that God is not angry. Didn't say anything about him not being holy. But in her mind, and others like her, his holiness is equated with how strictly he enforces the rules and how enraged he gets when people break them. But holiness doesn't have anything to do with anger. Now, I thought it did years ago because of my upbringing, but it doesn't. I know better today. It simply means set apart or uncommon. And I don't know about you, but I have discovered that anger is not all that uncommon. And I rediscover that every time I get on I-4 here in Orlando, Florida. People are not always so kind in their rat race to the house of mouse, I can tell you that. Wrath and rage are not uncommon. What would be uncommon, though, is love for that maniac who cut you off, right? Now, that would be different. You know, Jesus said the same. Not about I-4. Or drivers, but about God. 
At the beginning of his ministry, he shocked a Jewish crowd when he equated God with unconditional love for everyone. And I do mean shocked. Imagine being one of them. As a Jew, your life was all about following the law. You were taught that God demands separation from certain people like Samaritans and tax collectors and lepers. Then one day in a single talk, this miracle-working rabbi challenges almost everything you know about God. I'm describing to you Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Let's go there. In Matthew 5, verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He got their attention. Then in verse 44, he says, But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, this was radical. Loving people on the far end of the spectrum meant loving everyone, period. And he continued on to reveal that this is precisely what God does, and it is what makes him good and perfect. Then he challenged the audience to have the same heart. In verse 48, he concludes, But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now understand here, Jesus did not say all of that to add another impossible law to follow. He's not asking them to be flawless. Like most of his Sermon on the Mount, he intended to confront their sense of self-righteousness and their idea of who God is. His point was to challenge their idea of perfection by revealing that God's character is not based upon his anger at people for what they do, but rather his love for people despite what they do. Like I said, radical. So were some of the other things he said in his sermon, such as calling himself Lord and claiming that he came to fulfill the law of Moses. From there, I mean, the crowd was bewildered and amazed, and some of them followed Jesus down the mountain. And it seems that most of them took a wait-and-see approach to everything that he kind of claimed. They observed from the outside looking in, but a man with leprosy lunged forward. He had to find out right away. He needed to know if Jesus was who he claimed to be and if he loved as he claimed to love. For him, hope was now or never. You see, in those days, to be a leper was to be ashamed. Because leprosy was so contagious, a person who suffered with it could not be among uninfected people. The law dictated that they were unclean and sentenced them to an isolation outside of the community. Lepers even had to shout, unclean, and ring a bell. If anyone came close to them, imagine the shame. So for all of those reasons, the leper who thrust himself at Jesus took a huge risk. If Jesus were not the loving Lord that he illustrated, who knows what punishment he would have received. But he had to take the chance. Let's pick up the story in Matthew 8, verse 2. On his knees before Jesus, the man begs, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't hesitate. He reaches out and he touches the man and says, I am willing, be healed. And as you might expect, the leprosy dissolved immediately. In Matthew's gospel, this healing 
is the first real demonstration of Jesus' power that he expounded upon. They knew him. I mean, it describes him as a healer before this, like before the Sermon on the Mount. But this is the first one that's really explained. And that's not coincidental. Everything about the encounter describes God's goodness in a way that flies in the face of what people believed about God since Moses. Remember that in the years after the Ten Commandments, religious leaders created many laws beyond the original 613. Now, those laws, yes, did include instructions for lepers to be isolated, and that was to preserve the health of the people. But humans took it further. Still many years from a full revelation of good and evil, we talked about that in the last message, and still many more years, many, many more years, from any scientific explanations for disease, people interpreted leprosy back then as one of God's punishments for sin, and they therefore treated lepers as one of God's enemies. But if God was mad at lepers, Jesus sure didn't show it. His reaction was quite the opposite, actually. Most obviously, he reached out and touched the man. That was one demonstration that he is God in the flesh. But there's more here than what meets the eye, at least to we modern readers. Back then, God and sinners could not be present together without some sort of buffer. And this began again in the days of Moses. He spoke, God spoke, through smoke on Mount Sinai. And he warned the people that they may no longer approach his presence, that they would die if they did. The perfect and the imperfect could not come together anymore. At this point in history, it is said that God hid his face from people. Now, that doesn't mean that he was against them always. In Scripture, one's face is symbolic of their true character. Hiding his face meant that God stopped relating to people through his essence of unfailing love and pure grace. Again, we talked about that in the last message. No doubt he still showed those qualities. Look what he says to Moses there in Exodus 33, verse 19. He says, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. And he did. He showed glimpses of it. But, the Lord said, you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. And from that moment forward, though God remained present with his people, they mostly heard him speak from a distance and saw his radiance behind a cloud. Moses was privileged to see his back. Nobody saw his face until Jesus. Get this. When the leprous man knelt before Jesus, the Lord could have offered mercy without touching him. He could have granted compassion without looking into his eyes. Yet Jesus stooped down and met the man at his level. In doing so, yes, he proved his immunity to disease. That's great. To a people who believe that disease is the product of God's punishment, Jesus' healing expressed both a willingness and ability to forgive sin. That is huge. More amazing, though. Jesus conveyed that God is here 
among imperfect people to reconcile them with his face. That's a message that he continued with nearly every subsequent healing. You'll notice sometimes in the Gospels, like when he healed the bleeding woman, he turned to her. He faced the people. But this was only the beginning. Jesus had much more to say through what he did. And now I'm going to date myself here a little bit, maybe. Some of you are going to say, I didn't know that you're that old. Although old might not be the right word. Maybe age. Didn't know that you're that age, maybe you'll say. Anyway, I was born in 1984. I'll let you do the math there. I don't remember much from the 80s, though. Most of my memories begin in the early 90s. Best decade, right? Funny enough, though, many of those memories were attached to songs. Like when I hear certain songs, memories come back from those times. A lot of them are pop songs that played in the background of the public places, like swimming pools and malls and things like that that I remember as a kid. Well, there are a few of those songs that I particularly remember for some reason, and occasionally they might pop up on a playlist or something, I guess, but several of them have something to do with what is love or I want to know what love is. I'd sing some of them for you, except I'd get copyright complaints and you wouldn't want to hear me singing anyway. Some of you know the songs that I'm talking about probably, but from their lyrics, it seems that the songwriters experienced love in hurtful ways, yet kept the hope that it might be different. Of course, the search to define love is not limited only to songs in the golden age of music, right? Might be a little bit biased, okay? The end of the 20th century. What is love may be one of the most human questions to ask. Experiencing love is a driving force of our existence. It was made to be. Sadly, though, like the songs express, many only know love through the lens of a broken system, and so most of our modern descriptions or demonstrations of love reflect that. Search for love in the dictionary. You'll find two definitions. The first is affection based on admiration or common interests. And the second is attraction based on sexual desire. Both are based on something. They're conditional. Those are the world's definitions, and they're flawed enough. But religious ones aren't much better. Some of them are worse, I think. Since the New Testament reveals that God is love, many Christians define and demonstrate love according to how they see God, which again, referencing last week's message, is incomplete or incorrect. Some have a turn-or-burn kind of approach to being loving. Others prefer a grace-and-truth approach. And I understand that people need to know if they are headed toward destruction. But often the truth we share is nothing more than law, and love is therefore demonstrated through subtle and not-so-subtle ways of threatening someone into the faith. Jesus had a better way, which I'll get into in just a couple minutes. But yes, God is love, which means that love looks like Him. But God didn't leave that open for interpretation. He defined what He looks like first, Jesus. Look at Colossians 1.15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible 
God. Jesus is what God looks like. And Jesus himself said the same. He said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to know what love does, then look at what Jesus did. And that brings us back to the 1990s. You might remember these rubber bracelets that were inscribed with four letters. Yeah. W, W, J, D. Remember that? Can you say what it is? Say it with me. What would Jesus do? Want to know what Jesus would do? Look at what he did. Want to know who Jesus would love? Look at who he loved. Want to know how Jesus would love? Look at how he loved. The Gospels provide those answers. They were written strategically. And I do mean strategically to show that. A few minutes ago, I shared the story of Jesus healing the leper. Matthew chose to emphasize that story in his gospel because it not only introduced what Jesus came to do, but it set the stage to show an important quality about love that it knows no boundaries. I don't think this is from the 1990s. I think we're coming into the 2000s now with this, but you might remember a t-shirt. It's based on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I actually think I saw it, somebody wearing it on Instagram today. On the front, it says, love your neighbor. On the back, it lists different kinds of people. Muslim, black, white, Asian, gay, addicted, liberal, conservative, among others. There's probably a kind of person on that list that each of us struggle to understand, much less love. One equivalent in Jesus' day was a Samaritan. The reason Jews and Samaritans didn't get along is because Samaritans were descendants of Israelites who intermarried with other races. Big no-no back then. So to the Jews, they were half-breeds who strayed from solid doctrine. It was their rule then to avoid Samaritans at all costs, certainly never speak to one. Do you think Jesus followed the rule? Never. Immediately after his baptism, the Apostle John described his first act of defiance. Jesus went into Samaria and he sat at their community well. Ah! Not good. Around noontime, along came a Samaritan woman. She came by herself at that time because she figured she would be alone and wouldn't have to face the whispers and looks she'd get because of her past and present. You see, she was married five times before, and now she was living unmarried with the sixth man. Imagine the rumors that spread about her and her little village of a, maybe a couple hundred people. As she spent down to draw water from the well, Jesus did something unthinkable. He spoke to her. And by doing that, he broke at least three rules. Not only did Jews avoid Samaritans, but Jewish men shied away from speaking to a woman in public, and they surely never interacted with a known serial sinner. Jesus shattered those customs. He spoke to the sinning Samaritan woman. Then he asked her for a drink. Then he told her, about a gift that God has for her, then he introduced himself as that gift. 
I can't tell the whole story. I go step by step through it in my book, Shut Up Devil. But by asking her for something, he showed her dignity. By mentioning that God has a gift for her, he proved her worth. By introducing himself as that gift, he showed that nothing counts anybody out of the invitation into God's family. Now, there's a great model for evangelism and that progression there, but that's a different message. Now, Jesus didn't wink at her sin. He just didn't use it to threaten her. Instead, he chose to love her out of her shame and let that love do its work, whatever it would do from there. And it did. It worked. The woman left and told her entire community about Jesus. And John concludes the story saying, many Samaritans found salvation in him. To the Jewish people, this was unthinkable. When you read through the Gospels, pay close attention to Jesus' interaction with Samaritans. He not only healed them, but he also used them as examples of good-hearted and merciful people. He referred to them as neighbors. And he did this with virtually every people group once considered too imperfect for God's affection. Lepers, Samaritans, Gentiles, Roman officers, tax collectors, bleeding women and blind men, they were all touched by Jesus. So today, if you ask, what would Jesus do regarding someone on a contemporary unclean list, you will find the answer in what Jesus did. He loved them through his touch, his time, and his invitation. If you ask, can God love me? You will also find the answer in what Jesus did. His actions speak for him with a big yes. Jesus demonstrated that real love knows no bigotry, it knows no boundaries. As Romans 8.38 says, nothing has the power to stop God from loving you. No past regret and no present imperfection. And one more thing that literally killed him to prove. No rule. Now please understand, I'm not against rules. I'm against seeing them as more important than people. That's what legalism is. Recently, I saw this demonstrated by a local burger joint that I ordered lunch from, never received. I placed the order on their app inside of their store, then I waited 30 minutes. My time was running out, though. I had to get to a meeting. When I realized that I had to go, I asked for a manager to cancel the order. It wasn't going to arrive in time. But no one came. So after a few minutes of waiting and nobody coming, I left and I called the store from my phone and talked to the manager on the phone on the way to the car. And he promised to cancel it. But that didn't happen. The charge showed up on my bill. It was like a couple weeks later when I realized it. When I noticed the charge was there still two weeks later with no refund, I phoned the restaurant and they told me that too much time had passed. They could not refund me. Now, they were talking to the wrong person. 
As someone who runs an organization that takes credit cards, I know that every system has a refund button for transactions well beyond two weeks. So I kindly clarify to the manager on the phone that it is not that she cannot refund, but that she will not refund. And she acknowledged that by leaning on some corporate policy. Now let me ask you, what is the better policy? Upholding a rule at all costs? Or breaking a rule to do the right thing for someone? I suspect this manager upheld the rule because she was afraid of someone above her. That's the power of legalism. It manipulates people with fear of being punished by someone above. The world of Jesus was filled with low and mid-level managers called Pharisees and Sadducees. And because they feared God's wrath, they went to great lengths to uphold the rules even if it meant leaving someone to suffer. They believed God preferred the rules. Jesus showed them that he prefers people. And he killed some of their sacred cows to show it. One instance was on the Sabbath. Of course, there's the rule, the fourth of the Ten Commandments, that says to keep the Sabbath day holy, and it goes on to say how to do it, which is not working on it. Religious leaders interpreted that in many ways to include divine healing as work. So what did Jesus do? He went and healed someone on the Sabbath right in front of them. And he also said that Men were not made for the Sabbath, that God made the Sabbath for people. We're not to be slaves to it. It's to help us. Well, seeing Jesus heal that person on the Sabbath was just the rebellion they needed to see him put to death. So see, there's the answer to the question I asked at the beginning. He healed a person on the Sabbath. Seriously, after he healed on the Sabbath, they planned to kill him. What they didn't plan, though, is that the very means that they used to kill him, the cross, provided the greatest demonstration of what love does. You see, with the institution of the law, God held people accountable for sin. Since justice is one of God's qualities, it is well within his rights to enforce punishment and penance for sin. And he did for thousands of years through wrath and sacrifices. We talked about that again last time. God never had to change this. But he wanted to. By taking on human flesh as Jesus, God chose to show that mercy is more important to him than sacrifice. On the cross, God chose to satisfy his law and justice all by himself, once and for all. And to do so, he endured the crucifixion so that the sins of the world may be forgiven forever. So that we could be reconciled and put back in peace with him forever. Just as the angels at Jesus' birth announced when they said glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
goodwill between God and men. Peace between God and people. The cross was God's ultimate act to define unfailing love. Through it, he established that people are more important than his own rules. And through it, he provided something more to help us see and relate to himself, ourselves, and others without the lens of sin. We'll explore that next time. So if you haven't yet, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you don't miss it. The revealing continues next week. For now, let me tell you about something you can get right now to take this message further. I mentioned the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, and there's so much to the story, especially as it relates to how much God loves you. I go step by step through the story in my book, Shut Up Devil. It's part of chapter 7. I call it a meeting with God's love. And I wrote the chapter in a way so that you meet God's love with the woman. And it ends with a love letter from the Lord addressed to you. It's powerful. Of course, there's so much more in the book. I take down the ten lies that are behind every battle you face, including the lie that God is punishing you. Shut Up Devil is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook wherever books are sold. Or I'll send you a signed copy if you order at kylewinkler.org slash shutupdevil. That's kylewinkler.org slash shutupdevil. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get your social media. Don't forget wherever you're watching or listening to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. See you next time.